Well, thank you guys. It's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, so if you guys will turn to Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you're visiting or if this is your first time to Southwood, let me just extend to you a special welcome. We are thrilled that you're here with us. Uh, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus, and we're uh, just ecstatic and giddy to have you guys here with us this morning. And so, Acts chapter 2. As you guys turn there, let me also just remind you guys, immediately following our service this morning, we're going to have, uh, in behind those glass walls, those glass windows, we're going to have a, kind of what we call howdy party, and so we're going to have different tables set up to kind of explain to you guys our different small groups that are available every year. And so if you guys have questions about, hey, how to get involved, this really is the morning for you. And so you can sign up this morning, you can ask questions. And so we want this morning to be a chance for you guys to figure out, hey, where do I get, what are my next steps? How do I get involved here at Grace? And so we're glad you guys are with us this morning. Acts chapter two, we're going to begin in verse one. Acts chapter two, Luke writes, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elimelites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygeria and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Why don't you pray with me? Father God, we give you great thanks that you are the God of the supernatural, that you are the God of creation and of history, and that you did not just create and step away, but that you intervene into the moments of human history. Father, I thank you for this morning and for a chance for us to open the book of Acts and to continue to see your story unfold. And Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would give us a fresh sense of how greatly and how deeply you love us that your love and your grace will over, always overextend beyond anything we've done, beyond any decisions we've ever made. You love us no matter what. And Father, I pray this morning that we would find in your presence uh, a freshness and an intimacy that you'd renew before us this morning, that you'd allow us to hear your voice, that you'd teach us, that you'd move me out of the way, and that you'd use this time in each of our lives just as you see fit. And Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with a simple question for you guys, and that's this. Have you ever looked back at your junior high or high school time and thought to yourself, as you looked at pictures of yourself, what was I thinking? <laughs> Have you ever looked at those pictures and thought, uh, what was I smoking or who convinced me that that hairdo or that fashion style was relevant and hip? Because it was an absolute train wreck as you look back on it, right? I don't know if you guys have ever had those moments, but for me, the greatest mark of my shame or my sense of regret was as I look back at sixth grade particularly. Um, I don't know for you guys where it lands, but for me, sixth grade, and none of you guys know this, but for the majority of my days in sixth grade, I went to school wearing silk shirts, all right? Silk shirts, all right? And, and to top that off, not only did I have silk shirts, but I paired it with these pants called Z Cavaricis, and basically they were multi-folded pants that flared out much like MC Hammer and a bunch of rappers in my day, all right? 
And not only that, but then I would spend an hour before I got dressed perfecting the hairdo that I wanted, all right? Uh, and, and what I did, much like a lot of the guys in our sixth grade year, was I would create a tidal wave in my hair, all right? I would erect it to go straight up, kind of spiky, and kind of group together like a wave that no matter how greatly it rained, no matter how greatly it winded, or no matter how whatever was happening at recess, this wave had to hold, all right? And, and ultimately, really for me, it really goes back to a model that a lot of us had in sixth grade. And for you guys, this will kind of date me a little bit. But here's where a lot of us went back to greatness, vanilla ice. All right. Uh, now, vanilla ice revolutionized the music industry. Vanilla ice revolutionized my sixth grade experience. All right. All of us wanted to dress like vanilla ice. We wanted to do our hair like vanilla ice. And I know you guys think this is just ridiculous. All right. Uh, but he was amazing in sixth grade for me. All right. And so, in fact, I love the album cover here. If you guys notice in the bottom right, one of the pictures is just his hair. All right. It was that just revolutionary. All right. And so all of us wanted to have the exact same kind of do. All right. And so as I look back at sixth grade, I think, what was I doing? All right. Who in the world talked me into that kind of look? Because something has gone awry, right? Something has gone amiss. There's something horribly wrong. All right. You guys can laugh and scoff at me, but my pictures in sixth grade are not up on Facebook. All right. Your pictures in junior high likely are up on Facebook, right? And we can see those moments of shame in your background. All right. But all of us have those moments, right? Where we look back and we think, man, hair wise, style wise, I I caught the wave of some trend. And when it crashed, Oh my heavens, right? (laughs) I'm just horribly embarrassed, right? And all of us have been there, right? I I think all of us in some ways are trend junkies, all right? I think so many of us are absolutely consumed today, high school, junior high, with what is trending now, what is relevant, what is hip, what is popular. And we want to ride those waves so that we conform and that we fit in. It's fascinating. I think even for me, generally speaking, I'm fascinated at even larger level of wondering why do some trends emerge out of obscurity to dominate a culture, to dominate a school, to dominate a campus, while other trends never see the light of day and they never escape out of a certain particular quirky group of people, right? What makes some things transcend culture and dominate and rise up and, and dictate to campuses and to schools and to students and to a culture at large what is right, what is hip, what is cool? Trends fascinate me, all right? And by and large, I think even sociologically, just watching, hey, what kinds of trends emerge and grab hold of culture? What kinds don't? And, and sometimes the ones that do emerge and are the most popular are sometimes the most unlikely. You never would have guessed it. And having been a college pastor here for a while and watching you guys come and go, I love watching the fashion trends come and go as well. Some of you guys uh, went through a phase where you were absolutely obsessed with Hollister and Abercrombie. Some of you guys might still be wearing those things. I don't know. All right. Uh, And yet you go back and you look back at whatever phase you had and you think, man, what was I doing? Right. Really? Did I really think that was awesome? I even laughed just watching uh, tennis shoe socks, period, and watching the evolution of those things. All right. They, they started at one point, maybe when you were junior high and high school at the calf. They worked their way back to the ankle. Then they went inside the shoe, the no C look. Right. And now they seem to be working their way back up the calf. Right. Everything is just, in a sense, a pendulum fashion wise. It just swings to and fro. All right. You guys do certain things. My dad did, which means I cannot do it no matter how relevant I want to be. All right. V next. I can't touch him, all right? My dad does that. He still does it. I just can't touch it, all right? Fashion is just a pendulum, and it swings left, and then it swings right, and it keeps coming back and forth. And if you just stay where you are, eventually it'll find you again, all right? Uh, And so here's the deal. Uh, Ultimately, in Acts chapter 2, what we're going to see really is the, uh, in a sense, if we were to analyze a trend, we're going to see a trend emerge out of obscurity, and we're going to see it dominate the Mediterranean world. We saw this as we looked at uh, Acts chapter 1, as we looked and kicked off our series last week. But Acts chapter 2 really is going to be the launching pad 
for this thing called Christianity. If you were with us last week and we looked at the the crucifixion, the resurrection, and really the ascension of Jesus Christ as he handed off his mission to a group of ragtag disciples and apostles, no one would have thought that this trend known as Christianity would have dominated the Mediterranean world. No one would have thought it would have seen the light of day. And yet, something is going to happen, particularly here in Acts chapter 2, that is going to turn everything upside down. Why in the world does a dismissed cult or a random offshoot of Judaism as most saw it in the first century AD, why does it in a few hundred years later dominate the Mediterranean world and begin to reach its influence across the entirety of the world and even up the ranks of emperors and kings? How does that happen? How does a group of uneducated men who are fishermen change the world? There's nothing particularly out of the ordinary about them. There was nothing that many would have said, hey, these guys are exceptional In fact, no one would have thought really this thing that was handed off to these 12 apostles would have ever seen the light of day. And yet something will happen in Acts chapter 2 that will flip the tables and turn everything upside down. And ultimately, as we look at Acts chapter 2, it really will resemble in many ways uh, watching a fire break out. And really, verses 1 to 4, really, if anything, is really a spark that's first set. And as we watch, we're going to see really the spark as it gets going. Verses 1 to 4 really are a spark that is going to be lit before this whole thing goes ablaze across the Mediterranean world. And so look at the spark. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And so you have all the apostles. Remember Acts chapter 1, Jesus has said, hey, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you guys to sit and wait. We know uh, from background that they waited about 10 days before the Holy Spirit would finally come. And the Holy Spirit will come according to verse 2 and on notice. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them as tongues of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Something happens here in chapter 2 as it begins. It really is a spark that is first lit. In a very contained, in a very small area, we are in one particular house, one particular group of people. Really, uh, if you wanted to trace the beginning stages of the early church, if you want to trace, really, in many ways, the beginning stages of Christianity, I, I would argue you don't actually go back to the cross. You don't actually go back to an empty tomb. You go back to this house, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. This is where it's all going to begin. In many ways, Starbucks started out as a very meager storefront in Seattle before it would dominate the world and bring heaven on earth. Amen, right? Um, In many ways, though, this is a meager little storefront or a meager little house, and yet it will be the beginning stages. It will be the launching pad for this thing called Christianity. Everything will begin here. This is where we get the first spark. And really, uh, it's not just a spark, but ultimately what happened what caused that initial spark? Uh, Luke will describe it as the spirit coming down and you have a very, very odd picture. I chose the analogy of the figure of a spark because it literally is tongues of fire that were distributing on each one of their heads. The text will say that they began to speak in tongues. And I know for our charismatic friends, tongues is a gigantic concept. What's really fascinating though here in Acts 2 as we look at it and as it's going to be described later on in this text is what's, what's being spoken and what's being heard is actual language. This is an ecstatic babble or spiritual babble that needs some kind of interpreter. It is actual language. Uh, They are speaking in languages that are understood by everyone else around. We'll see that here in a minute. But what begins here really is, is simply a spark. 
It begins in a very contained area, and yet it's going to quickly spread. In fact, we're going to see that it's going to quickly, in a sense, have a backdraft. It's going to have this moment where it breaks out suddenly. In fact, most sparks, most fires begin very, very small, right? At the campsite with an idiotic camper who just uh, lights a cigarette, throws it down, and you have a forest fire. Boom, right? Uh, Or it's a kitchen fire, right? Something just breaks out in the kitchen, but before you know it, 30 minutes later, the entire house is set ablaze. I ran across a story this week of a guy who was hiking in a small little island uh, near Norway. And uh, into the hike, he actually fell at one point and broke his foot. And he was hiking completely by himself. He was out in the middle of nowhere. And so he waited for three days for someone to come across his path, for someone to hear him. And he never found anyone to come across his path. Thankfully, this wasn't like the movie 127 Hours where he had to sever his leg. If you've seen that, it's awful, all right? Uh, but this guy in his, ends up deciding he's going to have to get help. And so what he does is this. He lights a fire. And he wants to send up a smoke signal, an SOS signal across the island for the inhabitants to see it. And so eventually someone will come to his aid. But something happens unexpectedly. The fire begins to spread. <laughs> Remember, he's on a broken foot, so he's not moving very fast, all right? But the fire begins to spread. It takes over his tent that he's camping in, and then it begins to spread over hundreds and hundreds of acres across this island, right? I imagine this guy just gimping around, trying to run away from the fire, right? And eventually he's rescued, eventually he's saved, but that fire spreads enormously and rapidly, taking over hundreds and hundreds of acres. Fires by nature are very difficult to keep contained, in fact, for most firefighters, their greatest fear is that of a backdraft, right? As they're coming into a home that has, uh, in a sense, got a fire that's contained, their greatest fear is that at some point another door or another space will open up and a fresh stream of oxygen will come racing in and then there will be a sudden explosion as that fresh oxygen or that fresh fuel for that fire comes in. And ultimately what we're going to see really in verses 5 and on in Acts chapter 2 is we're going to see a backdraft effect. Verses 1 to 4, we have a very small little house. A spark has been lit. And what we're going to see immediately, verse 5, is that spark is going to spread and a backdraft effect will occur. And all of a sudden, there's going to be a sudden explosion and this fire will no longer remain contained. Look with me, verse 5. Notice what happens. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered. Notice it took one verse. We are immediately right after this. The sound that that the apostles heard inside the house was also audible outside the house. And so all of a sudden we have a crowd who's beginning to assemble. In fact, Luke will tell us that the crowd was at a particular time since it was Pentecost. This crowd that's assembled are Jews who have been spread out all across the Mediterranean world, though, who have come back during Pentecost. All right. Uh, Pentecost, in a sense, is like a spiritual Olympics, if you will. All right. Everyone has returned back to Jerusalem. You have Jews who have been spread out all across the lands. In fact, verses 9 and 11 that we read earlier very much describe who all was there. God has orchestrated this spark at a point in time in which it can spread rapidly, not just through Jerusalem, but through the nation of Israel and even through the Mediterranean world. We have all these individuals who have been brought back. And so Paul says, notice who all is here. In this backdraft a moment, notice how quickly and how greatly containment has been broken because we have witnesses. We have individuals from all across the Mediterranean world who are here and they are astonished. Notice, notice the questions they ask in verse 7 as they hear what's happening and they see what's happening. Verse 7. And so they were amazed and they were astonished saying, and then they're going to ask three questions. Notice the first question. They were astonished saying, why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? The crowd recognizes the simple fact that all of the apostles, all those who were speaking with tongues, so to speak, were all Galileans. They had the same ethnic roots. They had the same diversity. And so it is their assumption there's no way that they would be able to speak in all these other foreign languages. 
it is impossible that they could have done what is being manifested. So they're all astonished, perplexed, confused, and they're going, what is going on? So they ask next in verse eight, they say this, and how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? They recognize that they're all Galileans. And yet what the crowd is hearing is their own language. These Galileans are all speaking and simultaneously the witnesses are all hearing different languages from the same spokespeople. Something miraculous is going on and and they're completely blown away by it. They're absolutely blown away with what's happening. And so Luke cannot say enough over and over words like astonishment, amazed, perplexed. They are absolutely on their heels, blown away, going, what is going on? In fact, Luke will tell us in verse 12, notice uh, eventually it provokes their third question. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? What's happening? Luke will tell us that in a sense, a spark was lit in an inside of a house, but it quickly expands out the house because everyone heard the wind that came in the house. And then they're all hearing witnesses speaking in their own language. And all of a sudden the crowd begins to gather larger and larger and larger to the point that eventually this really is beginning to create a kind of hysteria and a, a kind of panic and a kind of confusion that's impacting the entirety of Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. So what we're going to see Peter do really here in a minute is provide a public service announcement. Ultimately, for a fire that is breaking out now, not just in a home, but throughout the entirety of Jerusalem amongst people who are going to be going back all across the Mediterranean world, hysteria is rising, panic and confusion is rising, and someone has to stand up and declare what in the world is going on. Ultimately, really, verses 14 and on really is nothing more than a public service announcement. All right, Peter's going to stand up and he's going to address the crowd. And what Peter's going to do is he's going to handle the crowd masterfully. All right. I think public service announcements are incredibly hard to do. Uh, I know all of us were struck and all of us were paying attention to the, um, the, the deal that occurred in Aurora, Colorado this summer. I, I, was, I was amazed as I had to sit there and watch uh, a, captain, a police captain have to declare and speak to not just Aurora, but the entire nation that was impacted by what happened there. And to see him have to balance on one hand great sensitivity to the victims, great emotional grief, and yet also have to declare to a nation exactly with clarity what is going on and then to eventually with strength also provide instructions to a nation as to what we're supposed to do in the midst of this kind of crisis. Peter's going to do the exact same thing and he's going to do it masterfully, but it's really hard to do. I've told this story before in different contexts, but uh, a few years ago, Marcy and I were on a plane and it just so happened that I, I might've been in first class and she might've been in coach. Long story. All right. Uh, but it just makes the story making more sense. All right. And so we took off and uh, everything seemed fine. I was up in first class with my peanuts and my ice cream sundae, uh, enjoying the day. And uh, eventually uh, about 30 minutes before we landed, the stewardess came on and began to explain to us that something had happened at takeoff. All right. Uh, that at takeoff debris had fallen from our plane right around the wheel wells. And they were not sure what it was. And they were not sure of the impact it would have on our landing. And so they had uh, kind of conferred together. And so the captain and the pilot and uh, the stewardess conferred. And the stewardess was really the spokesperson who explained to us that when we landed, there would be police cars, there would be ambulances, there would be fire trucks to be ready for anything that might happen when we landed. The, the crazy thing, though, was in those moments and those kinds of public service announcements, what you really hope to happen is the individual who's speaking can quell speculation, can maintain composure uh, to prevent any kind of further hysteria. And yet this l- precious stewardess was losing it. All right. So she's up trying to talk to everybody, but she is absolutely terrified. And you can hear it in her voice. You really begin to think that she thinks we're going to die. All right. And so literally I, I, Marcy was in the back and she really thought this is it. 
and so she's back sharing the gospel with everyone that she can have an audible distance to. And I'm up in the front for whatever reason, really feeling calm about things, just reading my book. All right. And so, uh, we landed, everything was okay. All right. But I, but I realized in that moment that handling a public service announcement really is difficult, right? When there's great confusion, when there's great perplexity, when there's great hysteria to be able to address an audience and a culture and a community with calmness, with composure, to answer questions really is difficult to do. And we're going to see Peter do it masterfully. Notice verse 14. Peter's going to stand up and address the audience and he's going to do it masterfully. Verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Ultimately, Peter is going to stand up at a podium and he's going to address the nation. He's going to address the city. And ultimately, he's addressing the Mediterranean world who's wondering what is going on here. Uh, Tongues of fire, people speaking in crazy languages. Someone tell me what's going on. And really, the first thing he's going to do is he addresses rumors is he's going to squelch some speculation. Notice verse 13. Many had asked, what does this mean? And in verse 13, some were arguing and some were saying, others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. (laughs) It was beginning to break out that many thought that maybe the apostles were drunk off their their rockers and were just crazy, all right? And so there's confusion, there's hysteria. Some people are thinking the apostles are drunk, all right? And so Peter's going to try to address that right off the top. And he says in verse 15, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. It is 9 a.m., all right? They are not drunk at 9, all right? Uh, And hopefully they're not drunk at 9 p.m. either, all right? So apostles, not drunk, all right? Let's just kill that speculation, all right? The rumors that are out, that is not true, all right? And Peter's going to move on and say, now here is exactly what is happening, all right? He kills the rumors, and the second thing he's going to do is try to explain the situation. So what is happening? The apostles are not drunk, and we have little visual flames on people's heads, and they're speaking languages that they don't know. Someone explain to me what in the world is going on. So Peter begins really to begin to explain the situation primarily about the Holy Spirit. He's going to explain to them exactly what is going on in regards to the Holy Spirit. And he starts in verse 16 and he says this, but this, what is going on right now is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And in Joel, he quotes from Joel and he says that it shall be in the last days. God says that I will pour forth of my spirit on all nations, on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Really, this is the primary point that Luke wants to make here in Acts 2 as really Peter goes back to Joel to say what is going on is what Joel spoke of regarding the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. He goes on further and he says in verse 19, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs of the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter's going to go back and quote from Joel. And what Peter's trying to establish is that what is happening right now in their context is exactly what Joel had spoken of and had foreseen in the Old Testament. In fact, the nation of Israel, those who were Jewish by nature, should not have been completely caught off guard by what was happening. The apostles weren't caught off guard because the fact is, uh, according to the end of the Gospel of Luke and according to Acts chapter 1, Jesus had told the apostles that when I take off, the Holy Spirit will come and he will guide you into all truth. In fact, I have to take off so that the Holy Spirit can come. And so to the nation of Israel, Peter is saying, look, here's what's happening. 
the Holy Spirit who has been promised has finally showed up and arrived. All right. In fact, particularly, where do they get this idea of the Holy Spirit? Uh, ultimately, we get this really primarily through Ezekiel chapter 36. The provision, the coming of the Holy Spirit was what we would call a new covenant provision. There are different covenants throughout the Old Testament, different times that God has extended promises to the nation of Israel. And in Ezekiel 36, we get uh, promises in regarding what is known as the new covenant. In fact, the context in Ezekiel is fascinating because in Ezekiel 36, the nation of Israel has disobeyed God. God has punished them for their disobedience. And in a sense, they're in a corner in timeout, (laughs) staring in a corner in trouble, feeling guilty. And yet God comes to the nation of Israel in that moment and says, hey, I'm going to do something brand new, something completely brand new that is going to change the entire playing field here as you try to obey me and continue to fail over and over again. I'm going to change you from the inside out so that something can occur that has never occurred before. And that's this, that you can actually obey me. Notice what uh, we find in Ezekiel chapter 36. God says to the nation, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Again, the idea of forgiveness, I will forgive you. I will pardon you for your sin and for your mistakes. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. What he's saying is that heart that is absolutely resistant and hostile and hard to me, I'm going to change that heart slowly but surely so that it's soft and that it's responsive to me. Even more, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Ultimately, I'm going to change your heart and I'm going to put my spirit actually within you. Instead of you having to follow a set of Ten Commandments and laws that are external to you that you don't want to obey and that you can't obey and that you continue to fail over and over again, I'm going to do something brand new that is going to completely flip this whole thing upside down. I'm going to come and I'm going to begin to tinker and actually begin to change your heart. I'm not going to take my spirit and I'm actually going to put it in you so that you could actually have the ability to obey me. Jesus will refer to this in John chapter seven, when he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this, he spoke of the spirit whom those who had believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. John seven is a really pivotal passage. It tells us two things. One, the spirit could not come. A new era could not begin until Jesus was ascended and departed. That is why it was good that Jesus left, right? The disciples are moaning, going, don't leave, don't leave. What do we do if you leave? Jesus says, don't worry. I'm going to do something even greater in your midst, in my absence and in my presence. Because by my being able to leave, I'm going to send my spirit who will not stand outside of you, but he will come in and dwell within each one of you who knows me and has believed me. It is a table turner. It flips everything upside down. And and I think for so many of us, I think as we think about our spiritual lives, as we think about this whole thing with walking with God and obeying God, I think for so many of us, it is just pure work, right? I think for a lot of us, we fail over and over again. We feel overwhelmed. We feel exhausted. We feel like we just can't get it right. I think for some of you guys, if you think about coming to church, you think about your own spiritual life, you feel like, man, this thing called Christianity, this thing called my spiritual life, it feels so lifeless. It feels dry. It feels overwhelming. It feels exhausting. And so as we get into a semester, some of us just say, you know, I'm just not going to try. I gave it a good go at the beginning of the fall, at the beginning of a new year, but it's just too hard. I just can't do it. And I think so many of us have no idea of what God has already done on our behalf. He didn't just die to pardon you from your sins, but he's done something even more radical than that. 
that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what he's done even in his ascension is that he's given you and I, if we know Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit who comes and lives within us and begins a change process in us that changes the entire playing field that is the spiritual life. If you're here this morning and you think, man, my spiritual life is just dry. It's lifeless. I feel exhausted. Then ultimately what lights a spark in the book of Acts in Acts chapter two is hopefully the same thing that can light a spark in your own spiritual life this morning. And it is the arrival. It is the recognition of the Holy spirit. I think so many of us think that the Christian life is all about a set of do's and a set of don'ts. And we have failed to realize that before we ever got to do's and don'ts, God had provided us a magnificent set of resources so that we could actually walk and live out the thing that he wants us to live out. We said this last week, and I tried to make this point last week, that before God ever provides us a set of responsibilities, he always provides us a set of resources. Before he ever provides us a task and a calling, he always provides us a set of tools and capabilities to fulfill that task and that calling. He never calls you to something that you are unable to fulfill and unable to do. The challenge for so many of us is we have no idea the resource that we've been given. And for the first century church, And for the apostles, the coming of the spirit will change everything. And it will take what is simply a trend and will move it from obscurity to to the domination of a culture and a world in the Roman empire in a few short hundred years, because something changes with the coming of the spirit. This is an old school Judaism about doing the right things and trying your best that makes you feel absolutely exhausted. This is a whole new offshoot. This is a whole new kind of change in which the spirit comes and allows you and I slowly but surely to find a greater and greater delight in the things that God has called us to live out. Slowly but surely we begin to find we can actually, actually fulfill and obey what he's called us to because he's allowed us to lean against a resource and a power source to fulfill what he's called us to do. Uh, some of you guys know that Marcy and I have a little girl who's about three years old right now. Uh, and we are in that stage where we're starting to try to teach her like sports and soccer. All right. I've tried to get her to watch cowboy football and that's just starting to fail. All right. Um, but nonetheless, I'm going to keep trying. All right. That's why we had a baby boy football. All right. So, uh, but she's at that stage where she's, we're trying to get her to learn soccer right now. All right. And so our first real issue with her is she's not really a big fan of wet grass. All right. So, uh, we walk out in the morning because this is the only time that it's cool right now. And she knows the grass is wet. She's wearing tennis shoes, mind you. And she doesn't want to be on the grass. All right. Kind of prevents, makes soccer a little hard to learn right now. All right. But we eventually get past that. We distract her. We get her on the grass. She realizes that her feet won't melt and she's okay. And then we get into the whole, like kicking the ball, into the goal. We're working on that. All right. And, and ultimately I'll tell you to kick the ball about five feet for her is about five kicks. All right. Each little kick is, it goes about a foot. And eventually, man, I just want to see a forceful kick. I want to see it occur fast and with excellence. And so I did something yesterday morning. I just picked her up at one point. All right. I picked her up and I swung her between my legs and I swung her back at the soccer ball and it just took off and went. All right. And I was like, yes, that's what we're looking for. Right. And so we just high five, we celebrated and then I would put her back at it. And again, you know, it goes a foot, right? We're, we're still working on it. We're still learning it. All right. But it, it occurred to me in that moment, I was like, what a perfect picture though, of what the spiritual life is supposed to look like as we lean back on the spirit of God, right? Our own abilities to kick a soccer ball, so to speak down the field in this thing called the spiritual life is so uh, inefficient. It is so uh, limited and in our own strength and of our own personality and of our own abilities, we are not going to get the ball down the field. We're not going to be able to fulfill what God has called us to live out. And so you and I have to learn in a sense what it looks like, what it feels like, how to lean back upon the spirit of God to allow us to move through the spiritual life with a strength and with a power that we do not have on our own. 
And I think so many of us are absolutely exhausted and so many of us are just worn out and tired because we are kicking it with all of our might and it's not going far and it's definitely not going the direction that we want. But we keep trying over and over and over again. If you're in that place where you just feel an inordinate amount of guilt because you keep failing or if you feel absolutely exhausted and worn out and this thing just doesn't feel life-giving, then ultimately I'd submit to you guys, I think you're trying to do this thing in and of your own strength. You were trying to live out an Old Testament kind of Judaism. That is not what Christianity is about. It's not just that we have a crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ, but we have the dwelling of the spirit that has been poured out on us so that we can live this thing in a completely different way than anything we saw in the Old Testament. Our spiritual lives ought to look completely different than anything we saw through the nation of Israel. You ought to find a joy. You ought to find a kindling and a heartbeat that is just beginning to erupt slowly but surely as you walk with Jesus to love the things that he loves and to find the ability more and more to lift the weight that he would call us to lift. And ultimately, it means that we have to figure out what it looks like to walk by the spirit, how to lean against the spirit and how to find a dependence on him because in and of ourselves, we can't. I think it is that reality that shifts this entire thing upside down as the book of Acts takes off. That's why I really think Acts 2 verse 1, that little house is the beginning stages of Christianity in the early church, because apart from the spirit of God, the church was not present. It is the spirit of God that initiates and inaugurates the church age and sends us down a path that we had not been on before. And it changes everything. It changes everything. It changes it for the early church. And I think it can change it for you and I as well. And so Peter begins here. He wants us to know that ultimately that you and I have to have an explanation as to what is going on about the Holy Spirit and what is happening in Acts 2 because it changes everything for the early church and it can change everything for you and I. Second thing that he's going to do is provide some clarification, not just about the Holy Spirit, but about Jesus Christ. Notice what he does in verse, uh, we'll pick up in verse uh, 24. He says this, uh, actually, sorry, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. First thing that he wants to correct about their understanding of Jesus Christ is that Jesus was crucified. Fascinating as a brief aside for you guys who love sovereignty and predestination discussions. Verse 23 is fascinating, right? Who is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? A lot of people. (laughs) Luke will say, or Peter will say, uh, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So God's hand was in it. And yet, who else is responsible? He says to the nation of Israel, you nailed him to a cross. You nailed him to a cross. Brief aside for you guys, however you want to understand God's sovereignty, you can never understand it in such a way that it dismisses man's culpability or man's responsibility. You cannot have a view of God's sovereignty without a view that also upholds man's accountability for the choices that he makes. And so he says in verse 23, speaking of Jesus Christ, he was crucified by the predetermined plan of God, but you nailed him to a cross. Speaking to the nation of Israel, to its leadership, he says, hey, Jesus was crucified. It, was, it fits in the plan of God, but ultimately you're also accountable for the decision you made with regard to the crucifixion of the Son of God. But he doesn't just leave there. He's going to move on. And in verse 24, he's going to speak not just of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but also of the resurrection. In fact, verses 24 all the way to 32 is going to speak of the resurrection, which we really, we talked about a lot last week. And so I'm going to touch on it very briefly. But notice he says in verse 24, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. 
And if you can go on to verse 25 and on, he's going to speak of this parallel with uh, King David and some of the Old Testament prophecies and passages that seem to allude to David to say, uh, those weren't ultimately alluding to David, they were ultimately alluding to Jesus Christ. Because David is in a tomb and he's dead and he's still dead. But Jesus Christ is not in his tomb. It is he who was raised, he whose body did not decay. Jesus was resurrected. And we said last week, that really is the watershed moment between the, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a sequel to the gospel of Luke. And those two stories turn really at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a crucial watershed moment between these two books. And he comes back and he kind of summarizes again in verse 32. when he says, this Jesus, God raised him up again to which we are all witnesses. Again, we said last week there were all kinds of witnesses. There were different and diverse proofs for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his appearance before the apostles and before the nation of Israel. This King Jesus, this man Jesus was crucified and he was resurrected, but that's not the end of the story regarding Jesus. Verse 33, he goes on and he says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the father, the promise of the Holy spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter is with the nation of Israel. He's just sticking it to him, right? (laughs) Jesus is, he was crucified. You thought the story was over, but he was resurrected and the story is going to continue on. In fact, in his ascension, as he takes off, as the spirit is poured out by Jesus, something even greater is going to occur. And the story is going to get far grander than anything they thought would happen. They thought if they could crucify the King Jesus, this whole thing called Christianity would have never seen the light of day. But with the crucifixion, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, Jesus pours forth the spirit and something even greater is going to happen than anything the nation of Israel had ever seen in the Old Testament. This thing will shift radically in such a way that it's going to expand from a dismissed cult to the official religion of the Roman Empire in just a few short hundred years. It will spread its its wings across the world and it will work its way up the ranks of kings and emperors. Something radically shifts right here in Acts chapter 2. This is the launching pad, if you will. Really, Peter is going to now kind of move on from just explaining. He's going to provide some instructions in light of what is happening then. Peter's gone on and on to discuss really uh, this Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. And he did that in, in response to their question of, hey, what does all this mean? And then they're going to have another question in verse 37. Notice, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. I bet they were because Peter just kept coming at them, right? And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? The witnesses there moved from that moment of, hey, what's going on? What does it mean to that moment of, all right, I have a picture now of what is happening. My question now is, what do I do? <laughs> what are the ramifications for me? And I think we could turn around even for ourselves and go, in the midst of what just happened in Acts 2, what is it that you and I are to do as well? Notice the first thing that Peter will say to them uh, in verse 38. He says, Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with, other, with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. Talk about a backdraft moment, right? Uh, this thing just erupts and expands rapidly all in one day. We had 12 apostles and a few followers in a room. And before we know it, there are 3,000 men and women that have gathered around and launched a movement here all in a day. 
Fascinating. Spirit comes, supernatural things happen. And Peter says, now, what are you to do? Let me tell you the first thing that you need to do if you're here is you need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and be baptized. We're going to talk a lot more about baptism as we walk through this uh, series. The book of Acts really is challenging. It is a transitional book in many ways. And so we're going to talk a little bit more as we go further about repentance, about baptism, uh, about Holy Spirit. We're going to see a lot of things happening in strange succession at times as we walk through the book of Acts. Ultimately, I think in large level, what is Peter saying? I'd say this. I think the first thing he's saying to the audience is join the family. I think the, the primary thing that Peter's saying to this audience is join the family. How do you do that? Peter first says, I want you to repent uh, and believe Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Ultimately, what he's saying to the audience is this. Repent, change your mind about the Holy Spirit and about Jesus Christ. I just explained to you what's happening. And what I want you to do now, nation of Israel, those who are witnesses here, is change your mind about Jesus whom you crucified, by the way. Let me remind you of that again, he says, right? And so what is he wanting them to do? I think he's wanting to realize that Jesus is not who they thought he was, but he is one who's crucified, resurrected, and ascended, and will one day return. They need to change their minds quickly about who Jesus Christ is. And as they change their minds about Jesus, they need to change their mind also about the Holy Spirit, because God has begun a new era, and something brand new has started. In fact, really, part of what the Holy Spirit does is, is that he adds you and I to a new family. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Uh, I'll submit to you guys, I don't think the church exists until Acts 2, because part of the work of the Holy Spirit is that he takes you and I, if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, and he adds us to a new community and to a new body. I think as we talk about salvation and and we talk about what God has accomplished and what he's done for you and I, we have all kinds of different portraits of it. One is often a legal portrait. We talk about God forgiving us of our sins that we've we've wronged, we've committed a crime. And so God comes as a judge and he wipes the slate clean and he pardons us. I think another one of the pictures that we see over and over again from uh, the New Testament is this, not just a picture judicially, but it's also a picture relationally. That God is reconciling a people to himself and he's reconciling a people to one another. In fact, as we look at what the church is, the spirit takes you and I, if we've trusted in Jesus Christ and he baptizes us, he unites us with a new body and a new community. And a community that is not just ethnic Israel, but a community that includes Jews and Greeks, men and women of all different ethnicities, all different backgrounds. There's a church that is here local in our midst and there's a church that is universal and even eternal, right? Uh, The church is a very broad concept. And what the spirit of God does is we trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins as he takes us and he unites us to a new community and a new body. And so he says to the Jews, to those who are far off, the Gentiles, he says, hey, if you're unsure of who this Jesus is, change your mind about him and join our family. Join our family. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I think ultimately what Jesus does for you and I is that he will not just pardon our sins. He wipes away the debt so that we don't have to feel guilty. And what he did on the cross was he died in our place so that we would not have to suffer the penalty of our sins and suffer alienation and uh, distance from God himself. And what Jesus does is he also reconciles us and draws us back into a relationship with God so that we can have communion and we can have relationship again. And he does that even for bodies and for churches and communities as he's recognizing and reconciling people from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds to be a community and a body and a family. My greatest hope for you here this morning, too, is as you, if you're visiting for the first time, is I I hope as you consider, hey, uh, where is it that God would have me serve? Where is he would have me worship? Ultimately, I hope for you guys that you will find a place to find community and find a family. That's here at Grace Bible. We're excited. If you're still looking for a place and maybe it's not here, I want to challenge you and encourage you that part of what Christianity is, is a communal process. 
It is a, all about a communal kind of life. It is about being part of a family. And a lot of us come from very dysfunctional families. And I will tell you, there are a lot of churches, even this church, every church, because it's part of imperfect people that are dysfunctional as well, right? We are broken people. This is not a place where we are all perfect, and yet we're trying to do life with one another. And ultimately, I think for a lot of us, as we think about uh, families, uh, what's fascinating as you look at the end of this passage, and we're going to go ahead and wrap up, is that I think the second thing he's going to say is that he wants us to launch the movement. Not just join the family, but extend the family's grasp, the family's reach across the world. And for a lot of you guys, I don't know if you'll ever run across awkward family portraits, or awkward family photos, all right? Uh, for whatever reason, these are kind of one of my guilty pleasures. I just think they're hilarious, all right? Um, and take this one, for example, right? Um, I just think to myself, the poor baby, right? He didn't choose this, right? He was just thrown in this, right? And also I think to myself, I would have no desire to be part of that family, right? Um, or even worse, how about this one, right? This just seems wrong on so many levels, right? Uh, obviously, they don't have a child, maybe, and so that their dog is their child, which is precious, but that's probably going a little too far. And yet again, I think to myself, I don't know if I want to be part of that family, right? And ultimately, when I want to ask you guys, uh, especially if you're here, especially if you know Jesus Christ, is this, what kind of family uh, experience are you exhibiting to the world that is watching? I think ultimately, as we look at Acts chapter 2, we're going to see at the very end of this, one of the most powerful displays of what the Christian family is meant to look like. And that display of the family was incredibly attractive and incredibly drew others into the family as that movement was launched. It wasn't just that the Holy Spirit came and did something incredibly supernatural, but ultimately they were experiencing a kind of family life that was drawing countless people in because that family was experiencing something that people were so desperate for. In fact, ultimately, I think you get three quick little portrait uh, characteristics of what a family or an early church looked like that I hope is true of us as well. Three quick things as we wrap up. First of all, I think they were a group of people and a family that was absolutely awed by the glory of God. They were absolutely awed by the glory of God. Look at verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Well, you guys, one of the favorite things I love about getting to serve Jesus Christ here in this particular context and community and even church is because I think God is continuing to do something that absolutely blows me away. Every year, particularly on, on the campus of Annam and Blinn, there are countless students that want to know Jesus Christ, want to walk with Jesus Christ. And I feel like the spirit of God is doing something here in our context that is so unparalleled anywhere across our country. All right. You guys are really a part of a part of something that I think the spirit of God that is doing that is absolutely unique. And ultimately, I hope for us as a church, for us as a community, that we are in awe of what God is doing. Notice verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Uh, Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. They were a people who were consumed and passionate about the glory of God. I'll tell you guys, my greatest hope every Sunday morning is that you guys would have an opportunity to be blown away with the glory, the majesty, and the love of Jesus Christ. And that what you guys would encounter more than anything else is that. And that my greatest hope for us as a church, for us as a ministry, is that we would be marked by a passion for Jesus Christ, for his glory, his renown, and his name more than anything else that people know us for. Second thing I think we see from Acts as we look at the early church is this, that they were devoted to the word of God. Notice verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were a community who was rooted and circled around the word of God and what Jesus Christ had handed off to them. They took great treasure and great confidence in what Jesus had spoken to them. And I hope for us as a church and as a community as well that we have a passion for the word of God. 
Obviously, as Grace Bible Church, it's not a a huge coincidence that we would be centered and that we would be passionate about the Word of God because we believe the Word of God is transformative and transforming and challenging and shaping of our very lives and our very hearts. The last thing I hope for us as a church and as a community and as a ministry is that we would be just like the last element I think we see, and probably most powerfully in the section, is that they were connected to the people of God. They experienced a kind of community that was really significant. Notice how Luke will describe it. Verse 42, uh, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need day by day, continuing with one mind at the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together. Ultimately, they weren't just centered around a particular set of doctrines or dogma. (laughs) Ultimately they were centered around the word of God and ultimately they were hand in hand with one another because they wanted to do life and to share life with one another. I hope that is true of our church as well. And I'll tell you guys, as as someone who's been here for a while, I will tell you that kind of community experience you will not find here on a Sunday morning. You won't. You can find it, and that's why we're going to do these 915 electives that will start next week to provide something smaller. But ultimately, whether you are here at this church or other churches or whether you go to Breakaway on Tuesday nights or not, you desperately need a smaller group experience, a place that you can share life with, a place that you can be known, a place that you can open up and know others. You have to find a place that you can connect to the people of God because this whole thing known as the spiritual life is a communal process. Sunday mornings are a great starting spot for that, but it is not the end spot because you need something that we don't provide on a Sunday morning. You need an experience of community with the people of God. And this is a great spot to begin those connections and begin to find out how to get involved. All right. So ultimately this morning, where we're going to end is letting you guys know about our small groups. All right. Our small groups really for us as a church are where we define success because small groups really are the place that you guys can get involved and find community. And you guys can find that on campus with a lot of different Christian organizations. And you can find that also here at our church. And so whether it's on campus or whether it's here, we want to encourage you guys get involved somewhere. All right. In terms of the things that we're doing here, as I break here in a minute, we're gonna let you guys go into the back and we'll have tables and you guys can ask questions about the different ministries and different small groups that we have. Let me give you guys a quick flyby again. You guys heard this in announcements, but if you're a freshman here this year, we encourage you guys toward Dulos. It meets Wednesday nights, seven o'clock to nine o'clock at all face. If you're a freshman, it's the best spot to meet freshmen and get involved here at Grace as you begin your college experience. If you're an upperclassman and you're beginning this whole thing called Christianity, again, Essentials, great starting spot for you. If you're an upperclassman and you've been around for a while, then I encourage you guys to consider growth groups. That is uh, here at Southwood on Tuesday nights. We kick off this week at 6.30. We'd love you guys to have, come join us. We'll be studying First Peter. If you've been involved for a while and you want to go a little bit further too, uh, growth groups is great, but if you want to add another piece to your community experience, Servant Team does that, all right? They will get into the Word of God. They'll be studying First Peter as well, but it'll also add a ministry component because we have a set of different teams that are helping us as a college ministry run. And so we have an evangelism team. We have a fellowship team. We have a service team. Uh, We have an international student outreach team. We have a global vision team. All these different teams are helping uh, provide outreach to our campus, to our community, involving you guys in the different pieces that our church is doing. And so we'd love for you guys to get involved. We'd love for you guys to ask questions. And so I'm going to wrap us up and pray for us. Then as you guys leave, you can simply turn the sign up forms in. You can ask us questions. We're going to hang around. We want to help you guys know uh, where would be best to step next. And so if you guys have questions, come grab us. But let me pray for us. Father God, I give you great thanks uh, for what you've done. Father, I thank you that something began in Acts chapter 2 that flipped the world upside down. And I think for so many of us, we need our own lives flipped upside down. 
Lord, we need a fresh spark. We need a fresh excitement. We need a fresh reminder of what you've done on our behalf, Lord. And I pray for so many of us that you would begin to rekindle a flame of passion. I pray that you begin to rekindle a flame that would not just erupt within our own lives, but it could not help but begin to spill out in the midst of our classrooms, in the midst of our dorms, in the midst of the organizations that we step. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be the kinds of people that would show a community family experience that is absolutely attractive and revolutionary to the culture and the world that we live in. Father, I pray for those of us who do know your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as others look at us, as they see us relate, as they see us do life, Lord, I pray they would see something absolutely remarkably different than our culture offers and our culture does. Father, I pray that they'd see love, they'd see grace, they'd see forgiveness, they'd see understanding, and they'd see unity. And Father, I pray that you would allow us to connect with one another, Lord, to find spots to get involved and that you would plug us into the places that you have for us this year, wherever that may be. Father, we give you great thanks for the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on a cross so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to you. And if we don't know you this morning, Lord, I pray that today could be that day. And maybe for the first time that we could trust in you for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life and that you would change us and transform us from that moment on. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Thanks, you guys, for being here this morning. We'll see you guys at the back tables, and we'll see you guys next week as well. Thanks, guys.